Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. How is everyone? Good. Good, good. Harry Ironside, a well-known preacher and author from a previous generation, used to tell the story of his struggle with humility. And so he went to a good friend of his and was asking some, for some advice. And his friend made this suggestion. He said, Harry, I, I think what you need to do is go and build yourself a sandwich board. Remember those? And put on the sandwich board the plan of salvation in Scripture and then go to the business restaurant section of downtown Chicago and spend the day. And so Harry Ironside did that. And he did say at the end of the day, you know what, that really was a humiliating experience, as you might could imagine some of the people's responses to him, right? But he caught himself thinking as he was taking that sandwich board off of him, I bet there was no one else in all of Chicago who would do what I just did. (laughs) Yes, humility is a difficult thing. Just the moment you think you have it, you have lost it. It was C.S. Lewis who said, Pride is the mother hen under which all other sins are hatched. The fact is, love and humility go together. Really, I think, inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. It was Dr. Martin Luther King who once said, Love is the only force in the universe powerful enough to change an enemy into a friend. Augustine concluded, One loving heart can set another's on fire. Benjamin Disraeli saw that we are all born for love. It is the principle of existence and its only end. The power of love and humility is the message of Philippians chapter 2. It is here we learn that whenever people love humbly and unselfishly, especially in the midst of strained relationships, they promote unity and they spread joy. The church in Philippi needed this message, as we will see later on in our study of Philippians. There were two women who were disagreeing with one another, and it was causing quite the rift within the church. We'll come on to that in chapter 4. Others were arguing with each other, complaining about one another, And that's even talked about here in this second chapter. The Apostle Paul will encourage and instruct us with regards to the attitudes and actions that are needed to unify relationships by humbly looking out for ourselves. Is that what it's going to be about? No. Nowhere will we ever find the gospel message encouraging us to look out for numeral uno. It will always be. And the example that has been set for us from the apostles to Jesus is to look out for the interests of others. 
love and humility coming together in that way, looking out for the interest of others. In Philippians chapter 1, which we covered, finished up last week, it is Christ first. In Philippians chapter 2, it's going to be others next. Paul, the so winner in Philippians 1, becomes Paul, the servant in Philippians chapter 2. Now, I think we all know and would agree that this is an acquired taste. In other words, for most of us, this doesn't come naturally. There are times when that old person that lives inside of us will resist the idea, this idea of others first, and we'll find ourselves thinking, saying things, something like, forget about taking care of others. What about me? What about others taking care of me? It's our natural tendency to think that the path of least resistance will make us happiest. And it's our natural tendency that what pleases us temporarily in the moment is going to last for a long, long time. And it just isn't the case. I think we've all found that to be true, haven't we? Just not the case at all. It's an acquired taste, this serving others. It's a habit that we must develop. Our natural tendency again, is to ask, what can you do for me? I will accommodate you to the extent that you can bring some benefit back to me. That's our natural tendency, isn't it? Our natural tendency is to make it all about me, make it all about us. Some folks, you could say, are relationship hoarders selfishly and stubbornly clinging to whatever they think will bring them joy and struggle to let go or even give back to somebody else. The tendency for most of us is to take and take and take and get and get and get and keep and keep and keep always with the question behind all of that, what's in it for me? Years ago, the poet Robert Frost wrote these words, and some of you, if not all of you, are familiar with them. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Today, we'll talk about some way that we can take that road less traveled, that path that leads to a life of joy and contentment. And we will discover, first of all, on this road that there really is joy in building up others. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. I think it's obvious to us that the Holy Spirit has instructed Paul to write these words. 
I will paraphrase what we've just read. If Christ has been good to you, if he's been there for you, if he stood by you, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, together in the spirit of unity. This is obviously, I think, for us a revelation of the heart of our Lord. This is the Father's heart for us and his longing that we have this heart for each other. Why would Paul use this phrase that we find here, make my joy complete? What does he mean by this? I think he's saying, I've been your pastor. I've been your teacher. I've been your spiritual leader. I have poured my life into you, and nothing brings me more joy than to know that you are doing well, that you are living the life that God has called you to live. When you live together in peace and unity and contentment, I'm filled with joy because it indicates to me that your spiritual life is right on target. Because for the same purposes, you've come together, you're working together, rather than settling for discord and division. Paul's whole reason for ministry, as we discussed last week, his whole purpose in life was what? For me to live is Christ. Christ was his life. And to build up others is what we find following right after that. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 25, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul, once again, was willing and able to set aside his own interests and desires for the sake of others. Let's read on, verses 3 and 4 now. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. There it is again. What is it that will make your joy complete? Have you asked yourself that? What is it that you think would make your joy complete? Paul lets us know what it could be, <laughs> or do we dare even say what it should be? <laughs> Seeing those around you doing well, seeing them living well, seeing them getting along and seeing them growing in Christ and experiencing the fullness of life that he offers. And the reason this makes your joy complete is because you know that you played a part in making it happen. You know that you had some influence in the lives of these people. You know that somehow, some way, you became a servant and Christ reached others through you. Now, if that doesn't bring you joy, real, true, lasting joy, I honestly don't know what will if that doesn't do it. Our natural carnal mind doesn't typically want to work this way, though. We want to find fault with the person next to us so that we can feel better about ourselves. Paul says just the opposite. He says, I want you to go around 
from now on looking at everyone else as being better than you. Talk about an exercise in humility. <laughs> Would you agree with that? I want you to start thinking about others, all others, that they are better than you. Wow. How about that? And then, obviously, begin to treat them accordingly. You are probably thinking that this is easier said than done, right? If not, there's no way I could do that. And on your own, of course, none of us can. But the very least, thinking that this is easier said than done, yet Jesus himself says to us, a new command I give to you. Did you notice the word command? He didn't say, a new suggestion I am offering you. Try this maybe if something else doesn't work. He says, a new command I give you. What's the command? Love one another. And just to be sure that we get what he's talking about so that we can't give off some excuse, well, I'm not real sure what he means. This is what he means. He says it in the very next verse, the next sentence. Love one another as I have loved you. Can I ask you a question? How's Jesus loving you today? How is he loving you today? And then he says, I want you to love others the same way that I am loving you. Wow. Biblical love is selfless love. The opposite of this kind of love is selfishness, of course. And humility does not mean that we go around just putting ourselves down and talking bad about ourselves. That would be nothing more than false humility. Humility really is. Biblical humility, as it is being laid out for us right here in Philippians chapter 2, is lifting up others. That is true humility. Lifting up others. Paul's attitude is, when I see you walking with the Lord, denying yourself, setting aside your own personal interests and desires, taking up your cross and following Jesus, you just don't know how much joy that brings to me. It's a win-win, church. And what do I mean by that? It's a win-win because joy in you personally living it Joy in you seeing others living in it. Win-win. Joy for everybody. <laughs> Joy all around. Verse 4 is the key, I think, to verse 3. It's basically Paul saying, I will esteem others as better than myself to the degree that I listen to their stories and explore who they are. For if we knew, I think, the secret hurts and pains and suffering of even our worst enemy, we would find all of our animosity that has been building and building beginning to evaporate if we looked into people instead of look, looking down on people. We would be filled with compassion 
for people. And as we continue on the road less traveled, we also discover that there is joy in imitating Jesus Christ. Imitating him. He has set the example. Look at verse 5 with me. It's, it's, it's quite a verse, really. The NIV reads like this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I want to make sure we catch the full weight of what is being said to us here, and I want to share it from a few other translations. The New Living Translation says, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. The New King James Version says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The English Standard Version reads, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In one of the most eloquent passages of Scripture, rightly guarded actually as a hymn sung in celebration of Jesus as a person and his work, Paul describes Christ's glorious life both before and after his selfless humility was expressed in his life and death on the cross. Verse 5, which we've just read, Paul sets up the hymn which follows in verses 6 through 11. And that's really what the scholars see it as for what it was. He was, he had kind of put a little hymn right into this letter he was writing to these Philippians and to us. And so let us be reminded how over and over again, the emphasis in this letter, this letter to the Philippians, is not on how we feel. We get locked up there, don't we? Often going with our feelings, and we've said it here before more than once, cannot go by our feelings, can't trust our feelings. So this is not about how we feel. It is all about, about how we think, thinking biblically, acquiring heaven's perspective. If the outlook is selfish, the actions will be divisive and destructive. I mean, here's the deal. Outlook determines outcome. Amen? These verses bring us to some holy ground, folks. I want you to see this. Holy ground right here in this second chapter of Philippians. The story hymn can be outlined in three basic ways. And and it, it, I'm referring to it as holy ground, and I here's why. Because in this short little hymn that Paul has provided for us right here in Scripture, verses 6 through 11, he is really providing for us God's story and letting us know at the same time that God's story is indeed to become our story as well as it is displayed here for us. This story hymn, again, outlined in three basic parts, the Son of God in glory before coming to earth, verse 6, the Son of God in selfless humility on earth, verses 7 through 8, and then the Son of God in glory after leaving earth, verses 9 through 11. So let's go back and pick it up at verses 6 and 7. 
Again, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Nature of God, other translations will use the term form of God, has nothing to do with shape or size. Jesus lets us know in John 4, 24, that God is spirit and as such is not to be thought of in human body terms, okay? And so when the Bible refers to the eyes of the Lord or the hand of the Lord, it's not claiming that God has a human shape. God the Father. Rather, it is using human terms to describe divine attributes, the characteristics of God and activities. The word form or nature actually in the original language means the outward expression of an inward nature. Okay? This means that in eternity past, Jesus Christ was and is fully God. Don't miss that, because it's huge here. <laughs> he is fully, completely God. In fact, Paul states that he was in eternity past, and of course still is, equal with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Certainly as God, Jesus Christ did not need anything, right? Well, what he have needed <laughs> as the Son of God. With the Father and with the Spirit, they reigned over the universe. But verse 6 states an amazing fact. He did not consider his equality with God as something selfishly to be held onto. Jesus did not think of himself, in other words. In other words, Jesus was willing and therefore did set himself aside. For what? For you. For me. And therefore, the example that is being set, the imitation that you and I are to do, is the exact same thing. Get ourselves out of the way. Which becomes the big, big problem, doesn't it? We struggle with getting ourselves out of the way. Our own interests, our own desires, our own will, out of the way. To follow after Christ, to make a difference in this world for his kingdom. Jesus did not think of himself. He thought about us. His outlook, his attitude was that of unselfish concern for others. This is the mind of Christ, church. An attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. And to do this, I will gladly make them available for the sake 
of others. A reporter was interviewed, was interviewing a successful job counselor who had placed hundreds of workers in vocations, in their vocations, quite happily. And when asked the secret of his success, the man replied, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. He says most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough. But it takes a humble person to handle privileges. A humble person will use their privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser person will use those privileges to promote themselves. Jesus used his heavenly divine privileges for the sake of others, for our sake. Are you getting the picture, church? For the sake of perspective, consider the contrast between Christ's attitude and that of Lucifer's as it's given to us in Isaiah chapter 14. He once was the highest of angelic beings, close to the throne of God, Ezekiel 28 tells us, but he desired to be on the throne. Of God, Lucifer said, my will, but Jesus said, your will. Lucifer was not satisfied to be a creature. He wanted to be the creator. Jesus was the creator, yet he willingly became a man. Christ's humility is a flat-out, in-your-face rebuke to Satan against his pride. <coughs> Lucifer was not satisfied to rebel himself. So he invaded the Garden of Eden, tempted the man and the woman to rebel as well. Adam and Eve had all that they needed. They were actually in charge of God's creation. Genesis 1.26 lets us know what God said. Let them have dominion. But Satan said, hey, you will be as God. And so they deliberately grasped after something that was beyond their reach. And as a result, plunged the whole entire human race into sin and death. My point, Adam and Eve thought only of themselves. Jesus thought of others. More than 20 times in the New Testament, God instructs us on how we are to live with one another. And so, for example, we are to prefer one another, Romans 12.10. We are to edify one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And we are to bear each other's burdens, Galatians 6.2. We, we should not judge one another, Romans 14.13, but rather admonish one another, Romans 15.14. It needs to be in our lives Church, Christ first, others next. Our personal desires and interests willingly being set aside for the sake of others. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul traces the steps in the humiliation of our Lord. One, he humbled himself. In the original language, it uses the word kenosis, which means he completely emptied himself. He emptied himself, laying aside the independent use of his divine attributes as God. That's just huge. Secondly, he, he permanently became a human. See, once he came and did that, there was no going back from that. He permanently became a human in a sinless, however, physical body. Third, he, he used that body to be a servant, a servant to all. Fourthly, he took that body to the cross and willingly died. It was a complete, total self-emptying. What love. Would you agree with me? What humility. What grace. From heaven to earth, from glory to shame, from master to servant, from life to death on a cross. He willingly humbled himself that he might lift us up. Jesus did not pretend to be a servant when he came. He was not an actor playing a role. He actually was a servant of all. This was the true expression of his innermost nature. He was the God-man, deity and humanity united in one. And he came as a servant. Let's look at verses 9 through 11 now. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's plan and purpose mandated that God the Son empty himself by voluntarily, selflessly, and humbly veiling his inherent glory and power in order to take on a humanity like ours. Intentionally, selflessly, veiled all that he was as God. A body like ours, subject to pain, suffering, and even death. But once our debt was paid, we know the old song, don't we? The debt that we could never pay, he paid. Once it was paid and his mission accomplished, God raised his son from the dead, glorified his human body in a miraculous resurrection and lifted him again to the position of highest glory and honor. God not only exalted Jesus to the highest position of authority, 
but he also bestowed upon him, the God-man, his son, the name of highest significance. The name above every name, Paul says. He who willingly bowed to the Father's will in selfless humility is now the recipient of worship. All persons bowing in submission to him. Those in heaven will bow, angels and departed saints. Those on the earth will bow from the most bitter skeptic to the most sincere disciple of Jesus Christ. And those under the earth believed to be referring to the unsaved, perhaps maybe even the demonic and even Satan himself. An acknowledgement of the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ and his right to rule as God, judge, and king. Paul again finishes that 11th verse, to the glory of God the Father. Now, if Christ, who had every right to remain enthroned on high, selflessly humbled himself for others, for our sake, Why would any of us who have absolutely no right to exalt ourselves over anyone do otherwise? In this way, Christ becomes the perfect example of selfless humility. As Paul said to the Philippians, he says to each one of us, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Dr. J. H. Joad, another pastor, preacher, author from a previous time, made this statement, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. At a religious festival in Brazil, a missionary was going from booth to booth examining the merchandise that was out there. And he saw a sign above, above one of the booths, and the sign said, Cheap Crosses. He thought to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days. Cheap Crosses. My Lord's cross was not cheap, he thought, and therefore, why should mine be? Wow. How we live and what we believe ought to reflect our attachment to Christ. It should display our connection to Jesus as those who are in him and belong to him and shine through, allowing him to shine through us to this world. We're not just to be content in knowing the truth. And like you've heard me say before, we must live the truth. And as was was mentioned last week from chapter 1, verse 27, the call to the Christian life is not merely to believe the gospel, but as it says there, but to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen. There is power church, in the humility 
of Jesus. And may that be, with his help, the example we follow for the rest of our days. He is for us. He loves us. Picture with me a brand new mom with her first newborn son, all wrinkly, no hair, cone head shape. And the mom is saying to the passersby, Isn't he gorgeous? Consider the dad holding his, his newborn baby girl. And he's looking at her and he's singing. You are so beautiful to me. Is there enough God? Is there enough faith in your heart to believe that that is what God thinks about you? Is there enough God, is there enough faith in your heart to believe that you too can live in such a way and see others like He sees you through loving eyes, eyes filled with grace and mercy? Father, we come before you this morning and we have hopefully once again been challenged in our hearts to do something that we seem to, to hear quite often, and that is to get ourselves out of the way and allow you to come and be complete Lord, God, and King of our hearts and of our lives. So what the world sees is Jesus in us because we have been willing to submit ourselves, to devote ourselves, to surrender our lives, our will, our personal desires and interests for your sake and the sake of others because we've got to the place where it is Christ first and then others next. As we would tap into the power of your humility, Jesus, and then live accordingly. Help us, God, I pray, to take this seriously and to shine for you, to imitate you, to follow your example for the rest of our days. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.